Welcome to the Future of Supply Chain, where each episode we'll sit down with entrepreneurs, investors, and industry veterans to discuss innovation, technology, and the most exciting opportunities in trucking and logistics as we build the future of supply chain together. Be sure to head over to podcast.dynamo.vc to keep up to date with our latest content or subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. Now, let's get into the show. Here's our host, Santosh Sankar. Hey, ladies and gents, welcome back to the Future Supply Chain Podcast. I'm your host, Santosh Sankar, and joining me today is David Cody, former CEO and chairman of Honeywell. Welcome, David. Nice to be here, Santosh. Glad to host you. Glad to host you. I should add that I'm also now executive chairman of Vertive Holdings, the data That's center right. company. That's right. That's right. And we're gonna we're gonna get into all that here today, but I'd love to start off with you know Honeywell is is a household name, the large industrial conglomerate that you led till a couple of years ago. But let's start from the beginning. What is your story? What is the David Cody story? You mean like when I was a kid and stuff? Yeah, let's take it back. How did you get <laughs> from okay. from there to ultimately leading one of the largest companies in the world? I grew up in a small think of it as a French-Canadian mill town, textile town in Suncook, New Hampshire, and a real French-Canadian enclave. Uh, in fact, I spoke French before I spoke English. I didn't speak English until I was three years old, and, and I was third generation. So this is just the way things were done back then. I had great parents, but no real professional role models. In fact, I was the first in my family to graduate from high school. My dad had uh, six months of high school. My mom had two days of high school and then had spent a year to get a secretarial degree to get a job. So as I was growing up, I, I guess I realized in retrospect, I had a lot of ambition, but I had no money and I had no direction. It uh, took me six years to finish college because I quit twice for a year each time uh, between high school and freshman year, and then between my junior and senior years, I tried to be a mechanic, a, a carpenter, a commercial fisherman. I enlisted in the Navy and to be on a nuclear submarine for six years, and I backed out the day before I was supposed to swear in. The second semester of my junior year, I got a 1-8 because I uh, had given up going to school because I, I was going to make a fortune commercial fishing. End of my sophomore year, I was called in front of the assistant dean of students and told I'd no longer be allowed to live on campus because I was considered a, a general troublemaker and they didn't want me there. <laughs> so I, I had a, when I say directionless, you can probably get a sense for it. And then I had an epiphany when I was, um, I guess I would have been 22. And I had just got married, we're living in a third floor, unheated, uninsulated apartment in New Hampshire. So you can get a sense for wow. how, how uncomfortable that might be in the winter. First month, my wife comes home and says she's pregnant. And I said, well, how can that be? You're on the pill. <laughs> she said, well, it happened. Then the fourth month, she came and said, I can't work anymore. And I did the analysis and found out that I was spending $2 a week more than I was taking home. And I had a hundred bucks in the bank. So I figured, okay, I got 50 weeks to figure something out. 
And that's when I finally got serious. And I always tell my oldest son, the reason I'm successful is because of him. Mm. He scared the bejesus out of me. I thought, sure. I used to know he was coming and I used to think, oh, I didn't know it was a he, but I'd look and say, God, my kid's going to die because I'm a screw off. I really need to get my act together. So I realized the only thing I was good at was school. So I figured I better go back to school. Uh, I quit smoking cigarettes. I started exercising and saying, okay, I gotta, I'm going to have a kid. I need to kind of get my life together. And I still remember bringing him home and having to tape up all the windows with masking tape because the breeze would blow in through the windows in the, in the winter. This is in February. Yep. And I was just really scared. And that was my epiphany. And from that point, I just applied myself and I said, I will do whatever the next job is if it pays more, because I can't keep living like this and having to every week figure out which bills I could afford to pay and which I could afford to let slide. And man, I hated living that way. And I just, I was working at GE as an hourly employee nights while I went to school days. And I kind of just pursued that path, eventually got an exempt job as a, what's called an internal auditor. So the finance area went on to their training program, did well enough to get on their training program and then eventually on their audit staff. And I just kind of steadily rose through the ranks at GE and found out that I actually liked working in business. I really enjoyed it. And then went to TRW and then eventually to Honeywell. What was that process like? You know, uh, going to Honeywell, uh, there's a whole journey and, and, and story there as to how you ultimately became CEO and, and had a very successful time there. Would love to uh, share that with our listeners. Yeah, I uh, I guess I had a couple of turning points, and you end up with a number of career things that may not seem great at the time, but actually end up working for you. And uh, one was I decided that while I was growing up in the finance ranks and while I was considered good at finance, I realized I wanted to be in general management. I actually wanted to run something. And that was tough to do. People didn't want to give you the chance. And it's one of the things I talk about when it comes to career advancement is everybody gets stereotyped by their organization. Mm. It happens in professional sports, happens in companies. It happens everywhere. People look at you a certain way. And I was strongly discouraged from going into general management by uh, people in the company, the finance guys, any general manager, all of them ready to tell me how difficult it was and much tougher than making recommendations. HR folks who told me that it would be a mistake. And I used to sit there saying, well, maybe, but I don't want to be 60 years old and look back and wonder if I could have. I would rather know that I could or couldn't and have to live with the consequences. And I think I can. Well, I finally managed to get into Uh, general management. And that started uh, working out pretty well. And then I was um, running the appliance business and Jack Welch called me to his, uh, to have dinner with him or his HR guy did in uh, June of 99. And he told me, I want you out of the company by year end. And I said, "Uh, okay, what did you see that you didn't like or didn't see that you wish you could have. 
<laughs> should have. And his voice just elevated. And he said, you don't understand. I want you out of the company by year end. And I said, well, uh, believe me, I understand, but I think I'm better than you think I am. And if there's something I need to address, I'd like to know what it is. And his voice got even louder. And he just said, you need to be out of the company by year end. And I find, okay, I got it. I got it. I guess we'll just talk about other stuff for the next hour or so, which we did. We never did come back to it. Uh, about three weeks later, he came to me and said, look, I got a lower level job for you. If you want to stick with the company, you're a good guy and all that. And I said, ah, okay, appreciate it. but." Uh, nice knowing I have that fallback, but I really want to see what's possible out there. So I ended up going to TRW as the COO and it was just, man, what a screwy place. And it had been underperformed for years. I, I mean, a CEO who would brag about how the stock was up 86% during his tenure. But then he'd fail to note that the S and P was up 450% during the same time. <laughs> And yeah, I'm not kidding. And the board would actually nod their heads like, wow, 86%, that's something. Uh, but I never said anything. I just kept my mouth shut figuring, okay, my time will come. And I knew it would come because they had fired the three previous successors. And visibly, I mean, the, the whole world, every investor knew. So I set up something, said, okay, I'm going to be the fourth successor. Uh, if they don't make me CEO by July 1 of 2001, as I recall, uh, they'd have to pay me $10 million. Now, they'd be able to afford it, of course, but I thought that would be awfully public to fire the fourth successor and pay him $10 million. It would be just too embarrassing. Mm -hmm. Well, they damn near fired me. The CEO went out of his way to say they'd made a mistake again and that I needed to be fired because I had a different strategic vision for the company, which basically got rid of all the automotive businesses and focused on aerospace than he did. So there was a, I ended up being investigated by the board for three months to find out what the heck I was doing. And they eventually made the decision that it would be too embarrassing to let go of the fourth successor. So they were going to take a, a chance on me. So I was just kind of sitting there starting to do my job. And he was, he was very difficult. He was not a pleasant guy to deal with. And he had his own problems that ended up having to be dealt with. And I got a call from um, Tom Neff at Spencer Stewart in December of 2001. Asking me if I'd be interested in the Honeywell job. And I said, uh, no, not really. You know, I just got this one. I probably ought to stick with it, uh, show what I can do. And he said, all right, well, let me, let me send you some stuff and at least take a look at it. I said, oh, and, and call me. And I said, okay, sure. So nothing showed up and it gets to be like mid-January and Tom calls me again and says, geez, you know, you never returned my call. I said, well, you never sent me the stuff. So I figured <laughs> you changed your mind and okay, uh, it's done. And he said, oh, God, no, I'm sorry. That's my mistake. So he sent me all the stuff. And I found myself looking at it, and I became intrigued with some of the businesses. And I found myself wondering why I was so loyal to a company and board where the board was not all that loyal to me. And I thought, okay, I think this could be a better opportunity. It's got its problems, which had been in the press, but I'll, I'll, uh, I'll take the job. 
So I ended up going in February 2002. And just amazing. Uh, I'm the CEO of the company. I get there in mid-February. And the board and the chairman, who is the former CEO, tell me I am not allowed to look at the numbers until I become chairman on July 1. So, um, okay, well, that's different, but I understand. And it's only four and a half months. And they said, you focus on learning the businesses. And when I would ask the finance guys, how's the quarter going? They would literally tell me, I'm sorry, but I've been instructed not to answer any of those questions from you. Wow. <laughs> I said, okay, well, so much for being CEO and all the power people think come with that. So I got to July of 2002. And it was then I finally started realizing the mess I had got myself into. Uh. That as bad as it might have looked externally, it was even worse internally. And we had very unhealthy, aggressive accounting and business practices, really no focus on the long term at all. Uh, a significantly underfunded pension plan. We were only like 80% funded billions in asbestos liabilities that had not been recognized or resolved, billions in environmental liabilities that hadn't been recorded, and everybody, the strategy, as was explained to me by a high-level leader at the time, was to fight it in court until you lose, then pay. And if you've got a 100-year-old chemical company, you've got environmental issues. And I also ended up learning that I couldn't trust my board and I couldn't trust my staff, three of whom who had, had interviewed for my job or expressed interest and obviously didn't get it. So they had kind of a different view of the world and whatever I was saying. So it was, uh, I, and then on top of that, I have to add, even on the uh, reporters and analysts on TV, I can remember them saying, uh, we're not sure this company can be turned around. And if it can, we're not sure this guy can do it, given he wasn't, he didn't make it to the first tier of the GE succession race, and he wasn't the first choice to run Honeywell, both of which were true. So it was not the most auspicious beginning for what eventually ended up transpiring. And with that, you ended up having quite the career at, at Honeywell, despite it sounds like a uh, muddled start, if you would. Um, <laughs> That's a good word for it. And um, it's ultimately, you know, culminated, uh, we're going to get to it, but uh, you are going to publish a book. You've, you've been writing a book, but most recently you helped take Veritative Holdings public. Tell us about that. What's your role there? Well, I'm uh, executive chairman there. So uh, not as involved as the CEO doing all the uh, tasks that a CEO does, but I'm much more involved than, say, a typical chairman. So I spent a day, day and a half a week on it, and, it's, and I've got a great team, and it's a great business. I uh, absolutely love the industry. As you probably know, when it comes to Honeywell, I always focused on having a, a great position in a good industry and being able to differentiate with technology and all those things are here. And I always say I like it because it's about where Honeywell was after the first two or three years where some foundational work has been done, but there's a lot more opportunity. Mm -hmm. Data centers are a great space. And I think that's certainly becoming clearer in this work from home environment where 
Gator's been growing 20% a year, and it's probably going to grow even faster as we uh, go forward. And we do that, and we work uh, so thermal products, thermal management products, uh, products that provide reliable, consistent power, the server racks for when you go in a data center and you see all these servers stacked up, and then what we call edge devices. Those, instead of uh, think of it as uh, putting data centers closer to where the action is so that you have no latency in the response that your device is getting. Yep. So instead of a 100,000 square foot data center in Finland where it's cold, you end up with like a two square foot or 10 square foot uh, data center in your facility. But I absolutely love the business and the team there. I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. And I'm excited about the book that you mentioned. Yeah. Tell us, was, uh, tell us about the book. Well, I guess a couple of things. First one was I wanted to write something that was really substantive. And in my experiment, there's a line I use a lot that said uh, most business books would make great pamphlets. It's 10 pages of content and then 250 pages of stories to support 10 pages. So that's why you can fly through them. And I said, no, nah, I want it to be something where every page causes you to have to think about something or it gives you a suggestion or an idea that you might be able to use. And I wanted it to be as relevant 20 years from now as it is uh, today. Um, I was also bothered a bit by all the discussion out there about short-termism and a feeling that it's just the uh, pressure to make short-term results means people can't focus on the long-term. And they make it sound like it's mutually exclusive. You either focus on the short-term or you focus on the long-term. And there's a concept that I ran Honeywell with that says success is about achieving two seemingly conflicting things at the same time. So examples, do you want low inventory or do you want great customer delivery? Do you want high prices and margin rates or do you want great volumes? Do you want people closest to the action empowered so decisions can be made quickly? Or do you want to have good controls so nothing bad happens? Well, in every case, you want to figure out how to accomplish both. And the same is true when it comes to how do you achieve both short-term and long-term results at the same time. And I use Honeywell as an example, where for the first five or six years, we performed, I'd say, slightly better than the general market because I was putting, I was giving some money to investors while at the same time, I was doing a lot of what I always referred to as seed planting, geographies, products and services, process work. And I used to get asked by analysts all the time why margin rates weren't rising faster. And I would tell them, I'm seed planting. I'm, I got to fill up the pipeline in all these areas. And I can't say they always liked it, but <laughs> our performance was still better than our peers, uh, better than the S&P, so they could live with it. Well, if you look at the last 10 years of my tenure, then we exploded because it's like all, those, all that seed planting started really coming to life. And as a result of that, over the 16 years that I was associated with Honeywell, we had about an 800% overall total share owner return. Wow. 
Yeah, and that was two and a half times what the S&P 500 had done. And we took market capitalization of the company from about $20 billion to around $120 billion. So it all worked. It all came together. So this, the book is about, so how do you do that? How do we do it at Honeywell? And what are the lessons for anybody who's thinking about doing this? We spend a lot of our time, uh, as I'd mentioned previously, working with early stage founders. And I'd be curious, what's one piece of advice, given your wide breadth and body of knowledge and expertise, that you would give a growth stage CEO? What should they be thinking about that you would suggest? Probably more than one thing. So this is kind of off the top of my head, but one would be to focus and pick like no more than three big things that you're trying to get done. Because if you're an entrepreneur, I think it's actually anybody who's really interested in business, you'll find you have a lot more ideas than you have time and money for. So figure out what are the ones that you really want to drive. So focus would be first. Second would be you'll have your focus on a long-term vision, which is good, but make sure that you've selected the right short-term metrics to make sure that your long-term vision is being realized. And I, uh, I haven't made this one up, but I use it a lot, is to say, look for falsification bias instead of confirmation bias. Once you've made a decision, it's too easy to just see everything after that confirming that, yeah, I was right. When you ought to be looking for what are those things that may indicate that I'm not right yep. and that I've made a mistake and that I, I need to think about things uh, a little differently. Uh, I guess the other one would be and whether you're an early stage investor or even trying to get a growth project going in a company. Make sure you resource it adequately. And I mean, I've run into too many things in my life where people would say, yeah, you know, the business would say, this is a great growth program we got going and say, okay, well, what have you done about resourcing it? And they'll say, well, you know, we doubled it. And I'd say, okay, well, what's that mean? I'd say, well, we used to have two people. Now we got four. <laughs> say, well, you know, I think you need to have 20. I'd like you to get 20 people on this right now. And they'd sit there saying, well, wait a minute, yeah, where am I going to get 20 people? I don't have that kind of cost flexibility. And I'd look at them and say, okay, how many people in your entire business? And the answer was often something like 35,000. I'd say, really, out of 35,000 people, you can't find 20 that you could take off something else to do this. And when you kind of put it in perspective for them, then they realize that they're being a little silly. Yeah. So th those would be the ones off the top of my head. So on, on that last point there, I'd be curious to hear your perspective because you're joining us uh, with the hindsight of navigating businesses through both expansionary cycles as well as contraction, uh, contracting cycles. And we've spent a lot of the last uh, few months uh, speaking with incumbents, asking them how they're thinking about technology investment, innovation. What should they be doing through a recession here? 
because it's not something you could just shut off. You have to properly resource it, as you said, both when things are going well and equally when things might not be going as well in the macro environment. I guess what I would ask a, a, a kind of a way of thinking would be when times are good, be thinking about recession. And when times are bad, be thinking about recovery, which is kind of contrary to how people do things. You know, while the good times are rolling, the herd thinking takes over and everybody gets excited about how great things are going to be forever. And this time things are different and et cetera, et cetera. And whether it happens after five years or happens after 10 years, a recession always comes. And when you're in the middle of a recession, there'll be plenty of people all talking about how this will go on forever. Life is forever changed. It's never going to be good again. This is a U-shaped recovery, a very slow recovery, L-shaped recovery. And be thinking about even in the middle of the recession, uh, yeah, I got to cut costs. But how do I cut costs in a way that still makes sure that I'm doing a great job for my customers today? And am I still investing in my growth efforts? Because the first thing people want to cut when things start going bad is all the new stuff. Because they have a tough time saying, how can I afford to do something new? When in reality, there is no better time to do that, especially if your competitors are cutting those new growth efforts. That's a time to figure out, no, I'm going to cut other stuff. And I'm going to make sure I keep supporting our growth efforts. And we did that at Honeywell in the last recession. And I'm pretty confident my successor is doing it this time. And I can tell you we're doing the same thing at Verdon. Even though there were calls to cut the new stuff, we said, no. Both the CEO and I said, nope, that is not the case here. We're going to make sure that we drive all these new growth programs that we've got. Yeah, that's good perspective. I appreciate that. I'm going to switch gears uh, a, a little bit. Um, I've noticed that you know you've always cautioned companies against having too many leaders. What does that mean? What are you getting at there with that statement? Well, it's really interesting that what happens in organizations, small or large, uh, whatever number of people you have doing things at the time, that's considered right. And anything new requires more people. And people are expensive. Uh, yes, it's a can be a terrific competitive force for you to have the best people organized, right, and motivated. But if you have too many of them, it's just adding cost and effort. The same thing is true when it comes to the number of leaders that you have. And we were considered a lean company. Investors considered us a lean company even back in 2002, that we were run pretty tight. We were about a $22 billion company. We had uh, 740 people that would have been considered in leadership positions. Uh, by 2017, we were a $42 billion company, so almost double the size. And we only had 650 leaders. And I was able to show to investors, for example, how we had double sales, quadrupled income, 
Yet, because the leaders were down, our bonus pool that was allocated to leadership was only up about 24%. Now, I paid everybody better, but it was costing a lot less overall. So it's a good phenomenon for two big reasons. One is if you uh, create positions for people to do something that looks like, okay, this will be really good to do. Uh, it, there's not just their cost, there's the cost of all the staff that they add, et cetera, which is generally known and thought about. But the second big one is that if you create that position and that staff, and this is uh, particularly true if you hire good people in those jobs, which you're going to try to do, they will find things to do and all of it will sound good. But unfortunately, all the stuff they're doing will generally be internal kind of stuff and means it consumes the time of other leaders. So what you do is just end up kind of perpetuating this idea of leaders talking to each other as opposed to actually focusing on the customer and externally. And I can say my successor has followed this uh, same maxim as a way of uh, trying to make sure that we focus externally and don't get hung up on the internal stuff. But it's all stuff that sounds like, boy, that's great. We really ought to be doing that. And what I used to encourage, and my successor does also, is absolutely agree on we've got to get this initiative going. We need to put in a high-profile uh, leader who can actually get something done and how are we going to reduce the number of leaders by one somewhere else in order to be able to support that? And over time, I didn't do this overnight. I just every year, if somebody had 17 leaders, we'll say in their organization, I would say, okay, next year, I want you to be down to 16. And I just gave them that number ahead of time. And you find over time that as people leave, they find ways to combine jobs. They look at things and say, God, you know, this was critical seven years ago when I started it, but it's not really anymore. I can eliminate that position and do something over here. And as a result, you end up with just a much more efficient, much more effective organization that's focused externally instead of internally. That makes a lot of sense. I'd be curious, um, what's the single thing you're most proud of from your time at Honeywell? The fact that I haven't been there for two years and the company is still performing great because, and, and anything you look at says it's going to be like that for a while because we put people process and portfolio in place. And when it comes to people, we picked just a great leader in a, he would tell you it was a very tough, uh, selection and transition process, but it worked. I mean, we absolutely picked the right guy. On the flip side, to some degree, is there something you wish that you had improved on earlier in your career, be it at, at Honeywell or, or even just broadly speaking from your time at GE or, or, or around there? What's the one thing you wish you kind of spent more time honing or refining? Well, I guess I'd have to go to um, advice that I give I used to talk to two to three leadership classes a month that would come to our Honeywell headquarters. And 
And I would give all of them the same advice. I don't know whether they all took it, but <laughs> it's advice. That we, yeah, I, 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 it was advice I wish I'd taken earlier in my career. And it's to be more self-aware of who you are as a leader and the people that you're trying to lead. And too many leaders, because if you're, if you're rising in an organization, it's generally because you've been able to do a good job getting results. You get results a certain way and it's working for you. So you tend to stick with it. Well, at some point, uh, those things that people have tried to tell you were potential issues for you going forward. Uh, they do become issues. And everybody needs to figure it out for themselves. And I used to tell them, I'm not a big believer in wholesale 360s in an organization. I think it just becomes a bureaucratic exercise, yep. but used in a focused way, the way we would, like somebody's coming to a training class. And I would tell them, okay, you're going to look at all the things that they said positively about you and say, yep, they really know me. That's, they're absolutely right. I am that good. But then you're going to look at all the stuff that's, let's say, negative or considered an issue. And you're generally going to have one or two reactions. One, they don't understand me and what it is I'm trying to get done. I just need to talk to them more or communicate better. Or two, you're going to say, I know who the son of a bitch is who said that. And I'd say both of those happen all the time. So don't deny it. I understand it. So, but now here's the tough part. You have to put all this stuff in a four block. There's good advice and there's bad advice. I take the advice. I reject the advice. So, so your job here is to reject the things that people said that really are not correct and to make sure that you focus on the things where they are correct on those issues and said no coach or anybody else is going to be able to help you with this you have to figure it out yourself i can only promise you that some of those things are true and they're going to hold you back unless you address them then i go into um the piece of advice, uh, getting back to your question, I'd say, here's stuff I wish I'd paid more attention to early in my career. Uh, I was told in my first appraisal that I could be defensive at times. And what was my reaction to that? No, I'm not. Not kind of recognizing the irony in the beginning and then realizing, oh, I need to put more words around it. And it was until I was about, I guess, about 40 years old. And I was in a meeting with my peers. Someone said something about my organization. I responded and he said, geez, Dave, don't be so defensive. And I thought, okay, here's a chance to put this one to bed. So I turned to another buddy and said, geez, do you consider me defensive? And he hemmed and hawed a little bit and says, well, no, not really. I mean, I wouldn't say you're defensive, but I would say if we say something negative about your organization and we are not 100% correct, you will rip our lips off. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> okay. As you can tell, that got my attention. It happened 25 years ago or so. And that got my attention. And I started to say, okay, I need to start 
separating my emotional response from being able to look at things objectively. And it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, I had uh, fallbacks on that. But I had to realize that over time and say, if I'm going to get the best out of people and make the best decisions, I need to be more self-aware here so that I'm really getting the facts and the opinions from everybody. Then the second one that I ended up learning over time was that I was decisive. Most people would say, well, she's a decisive leader. That's what we all want. I mean, how can that be a drawback? Well, when you're making small decisions, it's not that big a deal. If you're starting to make really big decisions where consequences are big and irreversible, you darn well better put a lot more time and anguish into trying to figure out what is the right path, what is the right decision to make. So I had to kind of impose upon myself some disciplines to make sure that I was properly decisive. And I really do think that if I hadn't been able to mitigate both of those issues for myself, I wouldn't have gotten to where I did or achieved what I did. But it's something that every single person needs to figure out on their own. And the earlier they can figure it out and realize it and mitigate it, the better off they'll be. That is really interesting, valuable perspective. I certainly appreciate it. I think a, a lot of our listeners, um, of, of many of those listeners are either building their own businesses, uh, are in the midst of high growth or equally, you know, part of uh, corporate executive teams and, and can go implement some of those best practices. Um, wrapping up here, David, I'd be curious to get your perspective, your vantage point we are obviously in the midst of navigating some uncharted waters uh, with the coronavirus. I'd be curious, how is this going to change business management as we go through it and we emerge out of it? Because there's a lot of different habits now, uh, remote work, uh, there are new leadership styles that need to be discovered or refined what do you think ultimately the business world is going to look like, uh, you know, next year, the year after, as we return to, I guess, or, or rather enter a new normal? I think there's going to be a tremendous reversion to the mean. Mm. And as much as people talk about all the huge changes that'll come, just like, I mean, we had the same conversation 10 years ago coming out of the Great Recession. Yeah. And now you got everybody talking about, uh, this is different. Uh, there will be things that'll be different. Uh, people, I think, are kind of learning that uh, picking up food and taking it home or having it delivered is really pretty convenient. Restaurants are learning it's a lot more profitable, depending on what you have to pay for delivery. So you may see some changes there. It may take time for aviation to come back, but uh, because uh, people will be a little nervous in the beginning and companies will say, hey, wait a minute, these internal meetings via the teleconference aren't that bad and saves a lot of money and time. So you are going to see stuff like that. I, I do think the whole everybody's going to work from home is way overdone right now. Mm. And I, at the end of the day, humans need to interact. Yep. 
And interacting over the phone is just not the same as being in person. And I find myself a lot more tired after six hours of teleconferences than I ever did after six hours of meetings in an office. Totally agree. Because, (laughs) yeah, I mean, human interaction matters. And I mean, how many times do you want to have to say, are you on mute before you say, this is ridiculous. Uh, (laughs) you, You don't get a chance to joke around. You don't laugh about something. You don't have the five minute, gee, did you see what the Patriots did last night? You just don't get a chance to do any of that stuff. And it's, it's more enervating than being at the office. So I think that's way overdone. And I, if you're trying to develop new products, having the marketing guys, the technology guys, sourcing, finance, et cetera, getting together on the phone once a day to coordinate, it's just not the same as having them all together in the same place, bumping into each other all the time. It's just not. So I think that one's way overdone right now. Yeah. Yeah, I, I completely agree on, on the human-to-human interaction. Sitting in a room, I don't think you'll ever be able to beat it. Um, and and wherever you, you can, you should definitely continue to try to um, encourage that face-to-face. Yep. I think there's going to be a number of people, too. Who I'm sure some people really like it. But I think over time, people are going to look at it and say, geez, you know, yeah, I know I got to commute. And I got to bring my lunch. But it's nice just to be someplace else for yeah. eight hours, 10 hours, interacting with uh, different people. I totally agree. It's, it's those little things that we, we take for granted or, or might view to be a chore, but just that m- mental and physical reset when you're just 15 minutes down the street or 20 minutes, uh, it, it, does, <laughs> it does keep you sane. And uh, there's something nice about returning home from work you're going to a place of uh generally for most people i think uh comfort relaxation just feel good about being with your family and you don't get that feeling when you're just there all the time it, it's just not the same yeah no i i can completely completely attest to that absolutely now i'm sure that for people listening they'll say well wait a minute what a troglodyte he doesn't realize how the world has changed and I love working from home and I'm sure there are people who do but in the end I think this is something that is not going to be as big as people think yeah well the the one thing I, I quickly identified is uh, we all like working from home when it's on our own accord uh, it's just very human right we like our freedom and and equally uh, we want to escape uh, you know maybe some of the uh, some of the things happening on, on the home front, you know, we want to be in an office environment or maybe we feel awfully social one day and we're not as social uh, the next. So we want to be, you know, in, in our home office. But do agree. I, I think the, the ultimate balance will be very interesting. I don't think we're going to index heavily one way or another. But with that, David, uh, we've, we've covered a lot of ground here. I appreciate you joining us sharing your story uh, for our listeners. They will be able to uh, pick up your book here, Winning Now, Winning Later. And uh, if they are to go onto our website, dynamo.vc, uh, they'll also be able to find uh, some promotional material as well. So I look forward to uh, digging into that. And uh, with that, David, appreciate you uh, sharing your wisdom. 
Well, you're very kind, and you're very kind to call it wisdom. So I, I do appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> Absolutely. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a five-star review and tell us what you liked. And be sure to head over to podcast.dynamo.vc to keep up to date with our latest content or subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. Until next time.